from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. EPA announcing E15 year-round, so why are renewable fuels groups still frustrated with part of the news? The return of the Dust Bowl? It almost looks like it described as a war zone is what somebody called it. It's just so bad. The aftermath of more than 100 mile per hour winds in parts of the plains. From one extreme to the other, why farmers in North Dakota are already looking at the possibility of prevent planting. And in John's world. China may be choosing a side. Now for the news. Well, the big news this week wild weather across the country. And we start out in the west with staggering snowfall. This is what it looked like earlier this week near San Jose, a unique blanket of snowfall for an area that rarely sees snow. In the upper elevations, winter storms continue to make deposits. As we move through the winter, that, especially with the cold nature of this latest round of late February storminess, will be money in the bank when it comes to summer water supply, because unlike the last several winters, we are not losing this snow early. It's holding on, continuing to build. And as we move into the melt season later this spring and summer, that will continue to fill reservoirs and replenish groundwater. Some areas like Mountain High, California, saw more than 90 inches of snowfall last week. At last report, the Sierra Mountains were at 162% of the snowpack needed by April 1st. And thanks to all of that snow, California farmers are expected to see increased federal water allocations this year. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation has announced an initial allocation of 35 percent of contracted water supplies for agricultural customers south of the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. Now, the announcement was welcome news after officials provided zero allocations for agriculture from the federal Central Valley Project in both 2021 and 2022. Well, that system also triggering some severe weather, including wild winds in parts of the plains. Multiple tornadoes touched down in the region in northern Oklahoma. A tornado caused down power lines and road closures. Two tornadoes were reported in Kansas on Sunday, leaving homes in the area destroyed. Traditionally, the southern plains and tornado alley, if you will, doesn't really start to come alive with these tornadoes and these severe weather outbreaks until maybe March, uh, especially April and May. That's the, you know, peak tornado severe season here uh, in the Southern Plains. But, you know, so this is a uh, quite an early uh, wake up call. Well, farmers in the area are still trying to assess the damage from those extreme winds as producers still face dire drought. Some areas of Texas saw hurricane force winds topping 100 miles per hour. With the region still in drought, sorghum producers are concerned how the 2022 disaster aid money will be dispersed. Some weather models indicating that areas of western Kansas and the Central Plains could see plenty of moisture a week from now. However, NOAA's seasonal drought outlook paints a dreary picture for parts of the plains. As you can see on this map, the brown indicates where NOAA thinks drought will persist through spring. And after sorghum producers last year saw the worst yields since 1960, National Sorghum Producer CEO Tim Lust telling me that farmers aren't only revising crop plans to deal with the continued drought, they're still trying to financially recover from last year's situation. Obviously, we were very happy to see uh, legislation in the December bill that provided assistance for 2022. Uh, one of the things that we have certainly been uh, um, talking about is, is how that is implemented and what that looks like. Uh, the ERP-1 model 
um, that was used for 20 and 21 worked very well. Uh, our board and leadership has grave concerns about the ERP2 uh, methodology and, and what that looks like. Lust says with the amount of ad hoc disaster aid that's been allocated the past six years, he thinks there are ways to create a better safety net within the Title I of the Farm Bill that includes disaster aid without negatively impacting crop insurance. Well, EPA announcing this week E15 for eight Midwestern states year-round. However, that plan would not kick in until 2024. States receiving approval are Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Ohio, South Dakota, as well as Wisconsin. North Dakota had asked, but did not receive approval. The governors had argued expanding the E15 supply would ease pump prices and help farmers. But critics, including those in the refining industry, have voiced concerns that a state-by-state -state piecemeal approach to growing E15 sales could cause distribution challenges. Jeff Cooper of the Renewable Fuels Association calling the announcement both good and bad news, saying while they're glad to see EPA taking action to approve the petitions, they are frustrated and disappointed the agency is proposing to kick the can on implementation until 2024. Well, USDA releasing a lengthy report this week about possible discrimination within the department. The agency's equity commission calling for sweeping changes. It presented more than 30 recommendations to extend opportunities to farmers of color and help remedy discrimination against them. Specifically, the report calls for greater diversity, equitable access to USDA programs, and accountability for the agency to follow through on changes. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack adding, quote, USDA is committed to turning the tide and ensuring those who seek access to land, capital, markets, nutrition assistance, and agriculture education and experience can do so regardless of their background, end quote. The report especially focused on diversifying county committees made up of local farmers who help with outreach and make decisions on farm service agency programs. Well, that's it for the news. 100-degree temperatures and 100-mile-per-hour winds we saw this week in Texas, along with another blizzard barreling from California to the East Coast. Another wild week of weather. So is that trend changing for March? Your forecast is next. Get in the game and be part of the 2023 Bracket Busters Challenge presented by Case IH. It's farmer versus farmer for a chance to win the $1,000 top prize. Go to agweb.com to fill out your bracket once teams are selected on Sunday, March 12th. Andrew Whitmire joining us now with weather. Andrew, March definitely coming in like a lion. But what's causing this very active weather pattern that's bringing everything from blizzards and heavy snows across the country to high winds and extreme heat to the south? In time, the real reason that we have been dealing with lots of wind and a lot of these subtle systems moving through the heartland, deep south, midwest, Great Lakes states and the east coast is really all thanks to the battle of the seasons that we are in right now. We're really trying to fight spring while winter is still trying to hold on to its last grip here in much of the country again really hasn't had much of a taste of winter outside of the far northern states and parts of the Pacific Northwest. As we go throughout the jet stream for this upcoming week, we're going to be watching kind of a zonal flow taking shape earlier on in the week, and that's going to lead to kind of quieter weather across much of the lower 48, maybe a subtle ridge building on in early on into this week as well. And then we'll be watching this deep trough out west. That'll begin to work its way across the country, and that will allow colder air to intrude much of the area that has been looking at these early spring-like temperatures throughout much of February and throughout at least the first few days of March. This will send with it a colder pattern here as we head on into the mid-month time frame. Here's a look at temperature trends for this week here. This blue below average temperatures and these darker blues 
up along the inner mountain ranges. Again, we've got some colder air that's going to begin to funnel on in. And here's a look at the temperature outlook for mid-March. Notice how we get lots of blues, much of the lower 48 here included in this cold outbreak that we'll likely have throughout mid-March. But remember, we're not in the dead heart of winter anymore. But again, we are still going to be watching uh, pockets of below average temperatures here as we head throughout this mid spring month. Here's a look at precipitation for this week. Again, we'll be watching a few more subtle systems working their way out west, Intermountain West and across the Plain States. Meanwhile, looking at some below average temperature or at least precipitation it goes with more of that zonal pattern up across the Great Lakes and portions of the north and east. Take a look at the drought monitor as we go on into this week and we're still looking at needing lots and lots of moisture here before the growing season really gets going across the central plains, Nebraska, Kansas, as well as even Oklahoma really needing lots of moisture here. Hopefully we can squeeze that out here throughout the next uh, coming days and next coming weeks and also watching some dry conditions out across eastern Michigan as well. Let's take a look at the root zone here. We've been seeing a lot of water inundated across the Mississippi, Tennessee and Ohio River valleys and we'll see that trend continuing here as we go throughout the precipitation forecast over the next uh, 10 days where we're going to be watching again parts of the southern Mississippi there for pockets of heavy rain of two to four inches. Well, after prices of grains and oil seeds that seemed to be in a free fall in February, what changed to start March? Brian Grady and Sam Hudson join us to talk markets next. U.S. Farm Report is sponsored by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator Steel Closing Wheels, perfected in conventional, excels in no-till. Order 12 to 16 rows today and qualify for free shipping or 20% off an end zone moisture management package. Well, welcome back. Sam Hudson, as well as Brian Grady, joining us for our marketing roundtables this weekend. All right, Thursday, a little mixed trade, Brian, but we saw February just that, that free fall when it came to grain and oil seeds. But it seemed like when the calendar turned to March, we actually had some momentum there. So, so what changed? Well, money flow. At the end of February, the funds got out, liquidated long positions in a big way. And, and uh, with the flip of the calendar, as often as the case, uh, they, they returned as buyers. We'll see if it continues or not. Uh, but this is a money flow thing. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with the fundamentals, to be honest with you. Well, speaking of the fundamentals, there were some rumors this week, Sam. I mean, when you look at some of the rumors that China was coming in to buy, things like corn, soybeans, sorghum. But at, at, at this point, at least on, on, on Thursday's report, we didn't have any confirmation of that, correct? Correct. Yeah, rumors are all they are still at this point. Uh, and when you look at overall export demand going into next week's USDA crop report, you know, corn exports still 13% behind uh, and inspections aren't that much prettier. And so I think we have to expect that we're going to see another cut there next week. It's really more of a matter of how much. Uh, and when you look at the fact that, you know, we could be providing a, a bigger carry out or carry into next year on the heels of these outlook forum numbers, it just helps reinforce that, you know, we may bridge the gap here as long as Mother Nature cooperates. And I think Brazil's going to help us do that. Uh, the pace of their harvest, I think, is going to help influence what price does in the meantime. Yeah, so Brian, at this point, as you see commodity markets, you know, searching for any bullish news at all, something that really you have to feed the bulls daily. Is there anything brewing on either the supply or the demand side that could continue to support prices? Well, uh, demand side uh, is a concern for corn, uh, for wheat, obviously, and, and uh, soybeans doing a little bit better. Um, so we, we need, but you know, like you said, we need a bullish catalyst. Uh, the Argentine situation, the crops are small and getting smaller. 
Uh, I think the market's become kind of numb to that. Uh, we probably need, if there's going to be a short-term crop scare, it has to be something in Brazil. Uh, and the most likely there would be on the corn side of things. The safrina crop, uh, the second crop was planted uh, later or, or beyond the ideal window for a, a good portion of that. Uh, that doesn't guarantee that the yields will be down, uh, but it does increase the odds that uh, you could face some some sort of a weather issue, um, lack of uh of moisture as we get out of the rainy season down there, uh, an early frost uh, that would maybe end the growing season before the crop is fully mature, those types of things. But uh, uh, that's nothing that's going to happen short term. Uh, that would all be, you know, a month or two down the road. Yeah. So, you know, we, we talked about demand, not a pretty picture there, but we are keeping our eye on what's happening in Ukraine. And, and, and just this week, we saw Russia saying that it will not approve uh, that Black Sea grain or that Black Sea grain corridor, that that deal, unless sanctions are removed. So now it looks like we do have some concerns about that. Is that something that could fuel the market? Well, uh, I guess it could. Um, you know, Russia is going to do what Russia does. Uh, they they have record exports planned for wheat uh, the second half of the marketing year, and and uh, so it would behoove them to to talk up wheat prices if they could. Uh, with that amount of exports going out. Uh, I think this will go down to the 11th hour, the same as it did in November, and and uh, we'll get an extension of the deal. It's a matter of whether it's another 120 days uh, or whether it's a year as uh, Ukraine wants. And and uh, when all said and done, though, I, I do think that the extension will be granted and, and uh, um, Russia will probably get a, a few things uh, added on, on their side of things. Uh, we aren't going to lift the sanctions from the West. Sam, talking about wheat, you know, we, we have some problems here when it look, you know, look at the plains and some of those areas, just that extreme drought situation. But when you look at supplies worldwide, how, how do wheat supplies set? Well, this goes on the heels of what you know Brian was just talking about here. I think it's become a lot easier for the market to kind of call these headline bluffs at this point. Uh, you know, we're a year into this conflict and you look at stocks usage here in the U.S. and they're still up around 30 percent, really didn't even move a muscle. And so. You know, we can talk about the, the tough conditions and, and winter wheat crop and, and localized issues. I think that's going to speak to basis and, and cash spreads as much as anything. Uh, but when you look at the weakness we've actually seen there over the last few weeks, I think it's just the market telling us, hey, we got a, another wheat crop coming here in the U.S. Even if it's lower than expected, uh, we can probably afford to lose some of that uh, some of that acreage or some of those uh, you know supplies in general, and that could. Uh, offer some uh, additional acreage to corn and beans here this spring. So from a price standpoint, we just really don't need it. I think if we see any uh, positive movement there, it's going to be more short covering in nature on some of these uh, scares along the way. But at the end of the day, uh, nothing's really changed. Well, what are some of the prospects for planting this year, as well as looking at the crop insurance price that we saw uh, really being, being made here in, in February? We're going to get Sam and Brian's thoughts on that later on U.S. Farm Report. More than a year after Russia invaded Ukraine, allies on both sides are still being revealed. But what implications could this have on the U.S.? Here's John Phipps. At one year in, I think it is realistic to label the Ukraine war a quagmire with no obvious end. Until recently, China, or perhaps more accurately, Xi Jinping, has been unclear on what involvement he intended. Last week, a German newspaper reported he was considering supplying lethal weaponry. 
starting with dual-use weapons like drones, but possibly following with conventional military materiel. While the report is in unconfirmed, it was credible enough the U.S. warned China of such ser of serious consequences if they did that. Russia badly needs to replace expended and outdated Soviet arms, while China needs Russian energy. That is compelling math. This is bad news not just for the heroic people of Ukraine, but Europe and the U.S. as well. Lethal weapons are a red line diplomatically and strategically. China's massive industrial complex can easily outproduce the combined Western alliance in sheer numbers of conventional weapons. It will become a contentious political issue as Republican support for Ukraine has been dropping and their admiration of strongman dictatorships like Viktor Orban of Hungary grows. Meanwhile, anti-China sentiment on the right has been intense for years so that an emerging China-Russia axis will be a real pick-aside moment. U.S. agriculture has much to lose. Grain sales are less worrisome, in my opinion, due to the infamous bathtub theory of commodity flows. The almost certain stronger sanctions on Chinese trade that would follow will pressure our flexibility to reroute our supply lines. Planter upgrades and combine repairs are already hobbled by ordinary steel castings and machinery tracks, as we discover, often to our surprise, where stuff really comes from. Our business with China is largely for such mundane, low-profit components, far more than complex technology like chips. While I believe this would be a major geopolitical blunder for China and Russia, our economic and political systems will be tested. Our ties with partners like Japan and Europe and neighbors like Canada and Mexico will be critical. For my money, Putin and the Ukraine in 2022 have too many similarities with Hitler and Czechoslovakia in 1939. Any decision by China to ally with an invader will change Sino-American relations and commerce radically. Thanks, John. Well, a farm all that features some family traditions. Tractor Tales is next. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF. BASF, helping you to do the biggest job on Earth. Tractor Tales on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Farmall. 100 years of milestones, community, and memories. Since 1923, it's been the one for all. Celebrate with Case IH at rightredtractor.com. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're going to check out a Farmall Super MTA with some deep family roots. Bridget Payne is the fifth generation on this family's farm. She loves owning this tractor because it's just like the one her great-grandfather farmed with. This is a 1954 Super MTA, and it's the International Tractor. And a really cool story behind this tractor is my great-grandfather owned this tractor. Well, similar one, not the same one. He actually gave it to his grandson, which is my uncle Carl, and he sold it quite a while ago and traded it in for a different tractor at the time and because they were used for farming then and now we just use them for parades and shows. This specific one, my great-grandfather used to farm with it. When it came time to picking a tractor, I'm one of the oldest grandchildren, uh, so I got to choose first and I just thought this had a lot of neat history and even though it's not his, it still has a piece of him with it. We use this tractor mainly for parades and shows. 
Like I said, we don't farm a whole lot with them since they are older and they're antiques to our family. We like to collect them and just have them and show them off in the parades. All my friends think it's really cool and I have, my best friend actually loves the same models of tractors and the same brand and all of our friends have different types of tractors that they like. We feud over them all the time. Some like the green, some like red. Besides the color, um, I really like how easy it is to drive this tractor. It's got power steering. It's not like the old days where you had to really turn it to get it going, but power steering really makes a difference. <laughs> Thanks so much. Parts of the northern Corn Belt got blasted by another blizzard, and it's already sprouting concerns about what it could mean for planting this spring. Michelle Rook takes us to North Dakota next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Severe planting delays across the Midwest and the Northern Plains last year created a lot of angst among farmers. And in some areas, those delays turned into the reality of Prevent Plant. Well, this year, those concerns are already popping up again, as Michelle Rook found out during the CHS Ag Industry Day in Grand Forks, North Dakota this week. There's a lot of optimism for the 2023 planting and growing season here in the Northwestern Corn Belt among producers and industry leaders, because even if grain prices cool off some, they are looking at a strong outlook for production this year and lower input costs. Gio Richardson with the North Dakota Ag Weather Network shared an improved weather picture with farmers for the upcoming spring planting and growing season. I think there will be more moisture uh, this year. Temperature-wise, perhaps not as warm as the past couple of years because the moisture means more clouds, but I still think we'll get close to average on that. And so if my analogs, the way I forecast past year similar to this year, I think it'll be a pretty good growing season. Farmers are also excited about 2023 due to the cooling of input costs like fertilizer to help maintain their profit margins. And I was able also last year to buy my fertilizer when it kind of took that downturn in February. Um, right now, I did put some fertilizer on last fall because we were trying to take, try to get a few steps ahead for 2023. It's been nice to see a little bit of a little step back from some of those input prices. So prices have been fairly steady. So we're okay with that. We're seeing a little dip in the most recent weeks. And so we'll see how that performs down the road with farmers buying, retailers buying, and where that will shake out. Supply chain issues are easing, transportation is improving, and the availability of inputs, including crop protection, is also better than the last two seasons. I would say availability looks better than it did last year. Um, there's, there's some things that have gone up in price coming into this year, and there's some reductions, you know, the Glufosinates, glyphosates are, are down compared to a year ago, but there's some other basic manufacturer stuff that's you know probably a 5% increase. With moderating costs, grain and oilseed prices still relatively strong and specialty crops all fighting for acres, what do market experts think the acreage mix will look like in the northwestern Corn Belt? I think we're going to see more corn acres, especially in the southeast part of the state. I mean, last year was a good indication that corn can make it through just about anything. So I think we will see an increase. I think prevent plant will be a little bit lower this year. That'll help with some of the increase in acreage. Spring wheat, I think, is going to lose some acreage. I don't see the incentive to plant wheat, especially with the losses that we've seen as of late. And I think bean acres will see a little bit of an increase. When you talk about North Dakota, you got to talk about Ukraine also, because a lot of the oil seeds that could be grown in the Ukraine can also be grown 
in North Dakota. And so sunflower, sunflower oil, canola, uh, we have these uh, new plants that are supposedly opening up. The, this market's on fire for oil seeds and we're gonna need every acre we can up here. The acreage mix is also influenced by February crop insurance guarantees with corn at 5.91, soybeans at 13.76, spring wheat down 32 cents at 8.87, and Durham wheat up 67 cents at 10.11. Crop insurance price will have an impact? It will have an impact. I think that'll impact the spring wheat. You know, that'll take some acres away. I think some of those could go towards the Durham market because it's higher. I do think that, you know, corn coming in the same as last year will, that'll kind of stabilize the acres there. With grain prices still at historically high levels, the general advice from market gurus is to sell new crop on the normal spring rally because if production rebounds in the Corn Belt, it could pressure prices into harvest. I think there's too many ifs out there right now, Michelle, and we're really gobbling up and eating all those ifs from those USDA outlook forums. You know, we think we'll have a perfect planting season. We think we'll have large yields. I think those ifs come in. I think we have some weather scares. We rally up. But I do think this is the year to really be very aggressive before harvest and sell the rally that you've got coming up here because these higher interest rates are going to make the cost of carry a much bigger deal moving forward. So producers with a good marketing and financial strategy believe 2023 may be as profitable as the last few years as long as Mother Nature cooperates. Reporting from the CHS Ag Industry Day in Grand Forks, I'm Michelle Rook for U.S. Farm Report. Thanks, Michelle. And it's hard to believe that planting is actually already underway in parts of South Texas. All right, well, our marketing discussion just kicked off in our last half hour. But what else are analysts watching? Plus, we need to get into the cattle market. That's next with Brian Grady and Sam Hudson. U.S. Farm Report at Ag Industry Days is brought to you by the Mosaic Company, creating innovative advanced crop nutrition products and practices. Joining us again, Brian Grady, as well as Sam Hudson. Brian, you know, it's not, not too far off that we're really going to be in the throes of spring planting. And so as you look at crop insurance price that was set, as you look at just balance sheets today, where is Pro Farmer when it comes to acreage? Uh, 91 million on corn and, and 89 and a half million on soybeans. So I, I think that, uh, um, you know, there's some in the market that are above us on corn. Uh, history has proven that uh, when you get up into some of those bigger numbers, uh, we just don't achieve that. Um, you know, up on soybeans more than than what uh, USDA projected. They projected uh, uh, flat acreage there, and, and we feel like uh, soybeans will pick up some. Uh, crop insurance price. Uh, when you look at the uh, soybean corn uh, ratio, there it was two point three three, which is very neutral uh, and gives neither corn nor soybeans an advantage. And and uh, so you. Know, I think that uh, when all said and done, we, you know, crop rotation is the number one uh, factor in the central corn belt. Uh, when you get out into some of the fringe areas, then the crop insurance price ratios come into play. Um, you know, those types of things. Uh, other crops, uh, you know, probably getting some more sorghum acres in some of those dry areas, the southwestern uh, plains this year. Uh, but uh, really, uh, I think that uh, the heart of the Corn Belt, uh, you know, we won't see acreage move a whole lot from where we have been. Well, Sam, you know, there's concerns about drought that we talked about, but also up in that northern Corn Belt, even in the Dakotas, looking at a lot of snowfall right now. And you go back a year ago when there were concerns about prevent plant and we saw that delay in spring planting. We got a boost in prices then, but we also proved that we could plant this crop in a record amount of time and still get some pretty impressive yields. So as we look at the possibility of prevent plant, do you think that is going to have much impact possibly on the market this year? 
Well, it could, but it may be one of those things where, you know, you assume normalcy until you're, you're forced to panic. You know, I quickly think back to 2019 and, uh, you know, think about how late we were and, and how much we, we planted in June and how good of a crop you could still get in a lot of these places. And in terms of drought, uh, I don't know that we want to catch up the entire Western Corn Belt uh, all in uh, April, May here. So I think timing is just going to be, uh, you, know, you know, the the real key here. Uh, I think a lot of these places have gotten enough uh, moisture here over the winter months, be it from snowfall or, or, uh, or rain. And I think that's uh, enough to provide optimism for germination, at least. And I think as long as those rains come timely here this spring, once again, this kind of goes back to the prove it approach. As long as we're cutting our, our demand along the way here, we can afford to have a little bit of a buffer out there uh, on, the on the supply side unless things get really bad. Sam, between now and when USDA does relief, release its, its prospective plantings report, what is the market going to be watching? Well, you know, it's what we just talked about. It, it, can we see a demand recovery? And if so, how quickly can it happen? I am still optimistic seasonally that we're going to see an improvement here, a surge in corn exports. Uh, we're dealing with river systems that are uh, very well charged and uh, a supply situation in the central and eastern belt that really will help uh, facilitate that program if there's a desire there. This break in the market may actually turn out to be somewhat healthy to try to uncover some of that demand and jumpstart it, but it can't start soon enough at this point. Uh, we're just so far behind. Uh, that in addition to, you know, the value of the dollar as Brazilian uh, harvest comes out, that's going to be key to how competitive we can be uh, at the onset of that and, and the pace at which we can recover those exports. Uh, other than that, uh, you know, again, I think you got to be looking at the, the weather side of things as we go into spring and how that can influence this. Well, Brian, last week on the show, we talked about uh, Brazil confirming that case, that atypical case of BSC, and just the, the bullishness that that really put into the cattle markets. So now here we set a week later. Is that still impacting prices that we're seeing today, or are there, there are other factors at play? Oh, I, I think clearly other factors. Uh, you know, the, the underlying fundamentals in the cattle market are very bullish. Uh, we're tightening our numbers. Um, you know, we just don't have uh, the calf supply to put into the feedlots aggressively. And we're seeing our feedlot numbers down year over year for five straight months, and, and they'll continue to decline. So uh, when we talk about the supply perspective uh, in the cattle market, very bullish. Uh, the unknowns on the demand side, uh, but demand has been performing very well. Exports performed very well last year, and uh, they're expected to back off quite a bit this year. Uh, but I don't think it'll be disastrous. Uh, so the cattle market is, is set up uh, to run to new all-time highs. Yeah, we've already seen pretty explosive trade action there. But are you still thinking that that Q4 could be what produces uh, th those record, even re record prices? Yeah, I, I think anywhere um, from the second quarter through the fourth quarter, uh, we could see, uh, you know, we're not that far off from the highs. So, um, you know, the only time we've been at, at these price levels was 2014 when we did run to those highs. And, and I think we'll eclipse them. Uh, it's just a matter of when, not if at this point in time. All right, Brian, Sam, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. Stay with us because we have much more on U.S. Farm Report when we come back. Well, if you're a car collector, you know how fun it can be to go to car shows or even car museums and savor some rare sights that are on display. But one dream car collection isn't focused on attracting those who already love cars. Instead, they're looking to spark interest among non-car collectors. Andrew McRae shows us how and why as we travel the countryside this weekend. As Chris Gergeny explains, this car museum began a bit by accident. Our main benefactors, Ward and Brenda Morgan, are very successful business people from the community here. And they went to a car auction to buy probably two toys. They love cars, they love things that go fast, they love the history of them. And inadvertently or accidentally bought nine cars. But where do you store nine cars? 
The old Ray's Apple Market grocery store had closed. They bought it and took the cars there. But nine cars inside a 55,000 square foot building looked a little sparse. They decided to purchase more cars and create a museum. The Midwest Dream Car Collection was born. There are about 65 cars on display at a time, with many more to rotate in and out. This place is a bit unique because they don't necessarily specialize in a brand or era. We're all about the cars, but we're not necessarily as focused on the car people because they're already converted, they're already knowledgeable in our area. We want to show the non-car people why cars are so interesting and the impact they've had on history. Certainly one of the most interesting is a car that can also be a boat. Not a lot of people have heard of an amphicar. Amphicar is an amphibious car, meaning that it goes on both land and in the water. Specifically, Doug is describing the Amphicar 770, which means it will go about 7 miles per hour in the water and 70 on the land. He remembers the first time they took it for a swim. Yeah, it's a fascinating experience the first time you drive a car in a lake. One, it's fun to watch the people on the dock see if someone pull up in a car and drive in a lake, they're all freaking out. You can find a lot of interesting cars here, from those well over a century old to sports cars just a few years old, trucks, racing cars, some may be worth over $1 million. If a car isn't roped off or on a platform, and if the crowds aren't too large, Chris might even let you sit in one and get your picture. As a child of the 80s, of course, my pick was the DeLorean of Back to the Future movie fame. In reality, the DeLorean was underpowered for its looks. What happens when you hit 88? I'm telling you now, I've had it out on the highway Slight downhill, slight tailwind, fifth gear floored to the maximum, I got up to 86. It will never hit 88. Roads? Well, we're going, we don't need roads. This museum hopes people will get up close and personal with cars, truly developing a passion for the industry. And who knows, you may just find one that will take you back to the future of automobiles. Driving the countryside in Manhattan, Kansas, I'm Andrew McCray. What a collection. Thanks, Andrew. And you can hear more of Andrew's travels on AmericanCountryside.com. Well, when we come back, John Phipps already talked about a possible alliance with Russia. But where does South Africa stand? Customer support is next. What is BRICS and why do we need to know? One possibly surprising alliance out of the war in Ukraine may be South Africa. At least that's the case for one viewer who asked a question about it and customer support this week. Rick Olsen from Harris, Minnesota asks a timely question. After I heard that South Africa is participating with Russia and China in military exercises, I asked a friend from South Africa, what's up with that? He said South Africa isn't allied with the U.S. And, and is part of BRICS, which stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. They are looking at expanding, including Argentina and other countries. I thought, no wonder China wants to buy grain from Brazil, and the world is lining up with the U.S. and our, our, our allies, or BRICS. What are your thoughts on this? This is a great question. I remember the first time I saw the term BRIC, singular, in 2001. It was an acronym coined by a Goldman Sachs analyst to lump emerging economies together for investment purposes. South Africa was added in 2010. The term kind of caught on and actually became a thing. While they are often compared to NATO, they are vastly different. 
NATO is primarily a military alliance. BRICS is a loose economic coalition, at least until recently. Nor is the rest of the world being divided into two camps. Today, BRICS has a headquarters for administration and summit meetings, a bank for development loans, and some joint infrastructure projects. It may be evolving into something more, but political instability within and between members slows cooperation. India and China struggle to find common ground, for one example. Most importantly, other than China, they really are emerging economies. Their combined GDP slightly larger than the U.S. South Africa is unique. Their economy is the smallest, and their nation has been in political and, con and cultural confusion since the end of apartheid in 1993. The ruling party, the African National Congress, or ANC, is plagued by corruption and incompetence. The end of colonization by the Dutch and British left a 90% non-white majority inexperienced with democracy and capitalism. The ANC receives considerable support from the Soviet Union during their struggle for political power, which explains some of the linkage to Russia at least. While I do not dismiss the potential for BRICS, it takes more than a decade of meetings and loans to make such an organization credible and effective. BRICS also lacks a clear purpose. Its impact on agricultural commerce is, I think, minimal. Brazil sells to China for the same reasons we do. The deal is right. Sales made for political reasons are just invitations for international traders to reroute ships and take arbitrage profits. Thanks, John. Well, what happens when you combine 100 mile per hour winds with severe drought? You won't believe some of the pictures and videos coming out of the plains this week. We'll show you those next. Well, a week ago, warnings were being issued about a possible derecho and dust storm in parts of Texas as well as the plains. But the aftermath are scenes that resemble the Dust Bowl. And as we talk to farmers, the winds combined with the drought are leaving a wheat crop that's barely hanging on. Check out these scenes. Brad Heffington lives outside of Lubbock, Texas, and he says in his 35-year career of farming, he's never seen anything like it. He had three-inch tall rye cover crop that is now toast in his fields. And farther north in Spearman, Texas, it's a similar story for winter wheat. I would say the dryland wheat's probably done. I would say the static electricity generated by that storm yesterday is probably going to be rather significant. Uh, there's guys today that's going to have to probably go out and we're gonna have to chisel some fields. We didn't get enough rain to settle the sediment and stuff like that. So there, there's going to be some calls with some insurance agents, figure out what we've got to do, what areas of field we got to leave for them to come adjust. But uh, I would imagine chisels are going to be moving pretty widespread. Shield Knight says his dryland wheat was already barely hanging on before the storm. But as you can see, the storm this week created little to no visibility in spots, blowing dirt even where crops were planted. And the prospects for the crops were already bad before Sunday's storm. But now with the high winds, the outlook for the dryland winter wheat crop is dwindling. That's because the drought combined with static electricity from this week's windstorm ravaged the wheat. Shield Knight thinks at least 80% of the area's dryland wheat crop is already gone. It's been a two-year drought for us where we haven't had just a significant rain event that really 
healed anything up. We got what rains that could get some crops up on the dry land, but it didn't sustain them. Uh, this northeast corner of the Texas Panhandle into the Oklahoma Panhandle into southwest Kansas, it's it almost looks like it described as a war zone is what somebody called it. It's just so bad. As you can see from the drought monitor, the two-year drought is creating extreme drought conditions in the area, and that's also sprouting concerns about the outlook for the spring crop. Shield Knight is thinking about switching some of his acres from corn to sorghum to actually help weather the storm. It's a unique place in the Texas Panhandle. you got to have a heck of a backbone and a strong faith in God. It really takes a big one because uh, if it does not rain, there is no chance you can get it up. There's just not a chance. And we have windows where we get rain. And if you can't get it up in those windows or months that it doesn't, it's nearly impossible. Just some extreme scenes down that way. And it's a topic we'll talk about next week at Commodity Classic as we touch base with sorghum producers as well as wheat growers, corn and soybean growers as well. And if you're heading to Commodity Classic in Orlando, make sure to join us Friday morning for our live U.S. Farm Report taping. It all happens at 7 a.m. on Friday, so we hope to see you for that early riser session. Definitely meeting our viewers is the highlight of Commodity Classic, so make sure to join us. Until then, we will work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.